The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. to him despite everything that happened physically to his family and to his wife and uh, still one of the greatest hymns perhaps ever written and ever penned because of the words it speaks not only for the tragedy but also for the hope that is found in Christ. Well if you have your Bible this morning if you'll turn with me to Psalm 127, Psalm 127 and we will be preaching a uh, standalone sermon today. The title of the sermon is Building a House That God Honors, Building a House that God honors. And as you turn there, I just want to remind you, Tower View folks, that uh, next week we will be back in our regular, regularly scheduled programming, if you will, of Hebrews. We've taken a couple weeks off for uh, Easter and now for our, our special dedication day. But we felt it appropriate to bring to you a message that is one that hopefully will be an encouragement to all of us. If you're here today, and Nelson said it very well, if you do not have kids, if you were never able to have kids, or if you have yet to have kids, this message still applies. Because guess what? The Word of God is living and active, and it speaks and it, it speaks to you, not because of the preacher, but because of the spirit behind the text. And I pray this morning that even if you don't have kids, or if they're grown kids, or your kids are wayward, or if your kids are whatever, this message applies. Because the Bible says we are to go to make disciples of all nations, and it doesn't give an age requirement of that. That is from every age up until we pass out of this earth. So pray that's encouraging to you. If you're able to stand this morning, would you join me in standing in the reading of God's Word for Psalm 127? If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. If you do not have a Bible, the Blue Pew Bible uh, looks something like this. Is It's on page 518, page 518, big number 127, small number 1. Actually, it doesn't have a number 1, but you know what I mean. It's, it's there as well. Psalm 127. This is God's Word. This isn't CNN. It's not Fox News. It's not ESPN or Royals Radio. This is greater than all that. This is God's Word spoken to you today. Hear it as we read this morning. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to rest late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives uh, he gives to his beloved sleep. I about said, uh, never mind, I'll leave, I about said sheep. Can tell what I need in my life right now, don't you? Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, for he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's God's word this morning. Will you pray with me? We're just going to get right into it this morning as we go through three things God tells us about building a house that God honors. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you this morning that we can sing that you are a good, good father. We can sing that it is well with our souls. Lord, we can rejoice that you are king of all. You are the holy God. Father, as we come today, we recognize that. We preach that, Lord. We, we seek to live that by your grace and spirit and strength. We pray that's in our community. We pray it's everywhere we go as ambassadors for Christ. But, Father, as we come together today on a topic that is one we haven't really preached much on and a psalm we haven't really touched on, 
you, that you would open our hearts and ears, that especially, Father, uh, if this is familiar, that you break the unfamiliar and remind us of what we know, but also encourage us to continue on in it. We thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not because we were better than the rest or had anything in us that was lovely. In fact, we are evil to the core, but we're grateful that even from the youngest age, Lord, that you have surrounded us, most of us in this room, with the truths of the gospel. What a blessing. So many children do not know who God is, who what Christ has done. Thank you for each of these kids here. And we pray this morning, as we often pray, that you would charge each parent, each grandparent here, and Father, by your spirit, that the gospel would just, just be like a hurricane in their innards, that they may come to bow the knee, whatever age that may be, that Christ is king and he is the only way to life. Thank you, Lord. The message is clear. May it be clear through what you speak through me. And we pray all this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Maybe seated. Thank you so much. Well, as uh, just a quick time out, I meant to do this at the first, but as a quick time out, we want to thank you again for, for Pastor Nelson preaching last week, for Brian leading. We uh, had a good trip to Boston, all that good stuff. We're grateful to be back. But one thing is we were greatly encouraged by the church we worshiped with. Uh, Many of you all understood that church is 200 years old. They had, uh, I'm looking at my wife here, I think they had five baptisms, three or five baptisms that day. It was a cool thing. And the church they meet in is not a church that preaches the word. Yet some of those people who go to that other church are so curious about what, the, what this thing is, and I'm holding a Bible, what this thing is, that they come and show up because they've never heard the word preached. It is a, it is a dry country in the Northeast as far as what the gospel is and what it means. So thank you so much. Well, today, though, we're in Psalm 127, and you know me well enough. You know I'm not a KU Jayhawk fan, but I found this old article from years ago, from 1985. I'm not going to tell you how old I was at 1985, but some of you were still as old as you are now. I'll just say that much, right? I know. That's our high school. It's been a while. Well, here's what it said in the Lawrence Journal. It said this, quote, it was an ad. Remember they used to put ads in newspapers? Has it been that long? It said, we will oil your sewing machine and adjust the tension in your home for only $1. If it were only possible to adjust the tension in our homes for $1, that'd be a great thing. Most of us would pay $1,000 if we could achieve that in our homes. Or how about the story of a woman who was watching TV about rebellious kids, and her husband said to his wife, what a mess we're in. And where did our generation go wrong? And the wife calmly answered, well, we all had children, didn't we, honey? You know, sometimes we feel that way about our homes and about our kids, but the reality is your home is either a picture of heaven or it's a picture of the opposite way of heaven, isn't it? And there are days where it seems like it's a very bad place, but I want to remind you today that the family is a blessed thing. If you have a family, even if you're a single person and you're connected to someone, having a family is a blessed thing. Knowing children is a blessed thing. This is what was told to us in Genesis 1.28. Brennan will put it up on the screen. You know these words well. God said, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the command. The number one command was to go fill the earth, to, to make children and to have families and to do those things. But you know, I love the local church because we are here today because there are children, there are elderly, there are families, there are singles, there are widowers and widows, there are adopted children here, there are orphans of different ancestries, colors, and socioeconomic backgrounds. And we come together with one thing in mind. We come together because Jesus Christ is king, isn't he? And that's why we come. And some of you grew up with a home where you had parents who taught you the word of God and, and, and modeled it before you. What a blessing that is. 
But most of us, and I'm pointing back at myself, say for my mother, there was no other Christian within my family. That's a scary thing. And my mom has been a preschool leader and teacher at my home church for almost 40 years. And I thank, thank her that she drugged me at times to church, even though I didn't want to on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all those things, because I'm here today because of her faithfulness. But a lot of you did not grow up in a home where Christ was honored. Christ was not honored in a way, actually, the name Christ was probably used in a negative way. But friends, what will we gain if we gain a church, but we lose our children to the world? What do we gain if we lose our grandchildren to the system of this world? And this is not a, a push for anything other than for us today to reconsider anew what it means for us as a church, as families, as grandparents, as, as uncles to children in this place who don't have uh, children of their own or, or aunts in this place who act in that way for children in here. Because the way we raise our children, the way we raise the next generation will be telling about where Tower View will be and every church will be in the coming years. Very encouraged last week at this church in the Northeast that most of the families there were young and with children. And that's a place and a calling that is hard to do. And many of you here today, I just want to tell you, many of you here today have wayward children. Many of you grew up with your families coming to church and your adult children have walked away. And you may feel some great guilt because of that. And I want to tell you, there is false guilt and there is true guilt. That you may have false guilt because you think that if you just did they would be walking with Jesus. Friends, they made that choice to walk away. But some of you here may have true guilt that as you were growing up, you didn't take seriously the charge and the call to raise your families, or if you're a single in the church, to be involved with the children of the church in a way that honors God. And that's something you can take to the Lord. What I want to tell you here today, wherever you're at with this, is that our call is to raise young people, to raise families, to raise people in this church who are sold out for Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the calling. The big idea today, if you're visiting the big ideas, is the summary of the sermon, is that the, to build a household of faith, we must see children as a sign of God's pleasure and a source of God's protection. And I want you to know that it is so easy in this world to go to a church where children just get a dose of religion and get properly socialized, but they never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a surefire way to turn our kids in this church off to Christ and all the church is to live one way here and live another way out there. Our kids don't need the best opportunities, church. They need parents. They need church members, grandparents, aunts, uncles who become heroes by following Christ, where success isn't always the goal. If we were perfect adults or perfect church members, our kids wouldn't need Christ. But may all of our kids in this church live lives that embrace Jesus to go the ends of the earth for him. That's what it's all about. And our, our, our folks who are visiting today, that's what you're seeking to do with your school is to raise up young people to know Christ. So this morning, three things we'll go be going through, and Brennan will put up the little big idea here on this, is we will see three clear ways to build a household of faith that makes long lifelong disciples. This is on your notes. If you're taking notes, you will be busy today. They will be up on the screen. I, uh, you will be taking lots of notes, but I want you to know this is a prayer for everyone here. If you have not had a child in your home and you're a widow here today for a long time, this applies to you. If your kids are grown, this applies to you. If you have kids in the pew with you right now, or chairs, whatever they are, this applies to you. If you're not married yet and long to be, this applies to you. Do not check out on me. I, my eyes are watching you. You got me? I'm looking at all y'all. 
don't check out because this is about something. This is not talking to 30 to 50-year-olds who have kids. This is talking to everyone in the body of Christ. First way we build our home to make lifelong disciples is, number one, we have to let God build the house. Let God build the house. That's found in verse 1. You see that very clearly as the psalmist, probably David, writing this. This is, again, a song of a sense they would have sung. Excuse me, a psalm of Solomon. This is one of two he wrote. You see that word unless, used twice. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The themes are creating and conserving are prominent here. This is a classic parallelism. He tells you it one way here, and he says it another way over here. Parents, you do that all the time. Did you hear me? And you say it another way, so they hear you again. And that's exactly what he's doing. This is exactly where he's coming from. That's why Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Without the Lord, your work is in vain. Well, what work is in vain? Well, if you take verse 1 by itself, this could be used for any building program at any church. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. The union would love that because they can just go take a break and get paid for it and not have to worry about it. That's not what he's referring to here. In connection with verses 3 through 5, he's referring to those who are building a house of faith for people of faith. You say, Darren, I am a single parent here today. Or Darren, my spouse is not a believer and I am. Or, or maybe my husband or my wife isn't as serious about this thing called Jesus as other people are. Well, I want to go through with you some things that what it means to build a house of faith. And as to drive Pastor Nelson nuts, because he hates my alliteration. Pastor Nelson, here are seven C's just for you, my brother. Seven things to build a house of faith. The first C, and this will be up on there, is that what must there be for God to build a house? There must be conversion. There must be conversion. This means that a husband or a wife must be converted. Now, yes, there are a million scenarios. What if a kid comes to know Jesus in, in, in the outreach of a church, but their parents are disconnected from the church? Well, maybe someone in the church needs to be the spiritual father or mother, so to speak, to raise them up in the Lord. But to really build a household of faith at its base, someone in that house has to be converted. They have to know Jesus. Otherwise, they're just teaching them good moral religion. And we can go to every church we could have gone to in Boston and New York last week and show you what moral religion looks like. But husband and wife or grandma and grandpa or whoever you are, if you have known Jesus Christ, you are ready to build a household of faith. If you're a single parent here today or if you're a parent who's only walking the faith by yourself, you can walk respectfully to your spouse who's not a Christian in a way this way. But it starts with knowing Christ. You can't raise people in Christ if you yourself haven't known Christ. And if you're not a Christian here today, it is simple. You must repent and believe in Jesus alone. It's not Buddha, it's not the Pope, it's not the pastor or the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, bless them all. It is Jesus alone. There's secondly, there is a commitment, an ongoing commitment to build your house for the Lord. This means mom and dad have, a, have one goal in life, and that is to raise up their young kids, their family, whatever it is, to know who Jesus is, to know what God's character is, what the gospel is, all the things in the basics of scripture. It means they want that to happen. Third thing to build a household of faith that you're not building in vain is that there are commandments. When the Bible speaks to church, who speaks? God speaks. When God says it, we do it. When God's word is clear on something, we don't fall back on it. God's word must set the pace for each household of faith. 
for your household. If you're single here today or widow or widower, God's word has not changed in its requirements for what is required of you. The fourth thing is, is in conversation. And I look at myself as I say this because I have had more than my angry moments with my kids. I'm being honest with you. I've had more of the false words. I've had all those things happen to you. Yes, that happens at the pastor's house too. Come over on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon and we love you, but you can see real life in action sometimes. And you all do it too, so don't pretend that you don't. But as much as is possible, by God's grace, we want our conversation to be focused on what Christ has done. Not bickering, not backbiting, not anger, not bitterness, not that silent treatment that we get sometimes. We want our words to be wholesome. We want them to be wholesome. And that's what it causes us to be because our children are watching all the time. And church members, I want to let you know one of the greatest turnoffs to Christians who graduate out of high school for churches that you ask a, a teenager is that their parents or their other church members who are more worried about complaining about everything in the church than more about praising God of the church. Be careful what your conversation brings. There should also be number five, compassion. We build our house God's way with compassion. Our kids, and I've had to learn this, our kids make mistakes, even at young ages. They don't always know what to do, and we get mad at them anyway. But there should be a display, great display of Christian love. As God has been patient with you, so we should be patient with our kids. Older members of this church, we have a brother pastor in another church who's in a, in a, in a pickle right now at his church. And I'm just going to tell you, they, they do not like kids at that church. They have 50 or 60 kids coming every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for a backyard Bible club. And they've had a come-to-Jesus meeting with our pastor that we sent out and basically said, we don't want these kids here. We would rather die and be old and be quiet than have these kids here. What are you going to do about it, pastor? May our church never say such a thing. Every noise that gets made here, yes, there are times of corrections in service, and there are times we need to pull a kid out and, hey, buddy, just hold it together for like 30 more minutes while the pastor preaches. You know, do that thing. But there should be compassion. Because we have people coming in here with children. And if you're a parent here and your kid has a day, we still love you. If your baby cries, it's okay. I can get louder too. You know, it happens. But you know what I'm saying. There should be compassion for children. And I love that our church, as we dedicate this children's center, we did it with a labor of love because we know that children especially, Jesus said, let all the children come to me. There should also be in the home a cleanness, a cleanness in the home. This means we watch I'm just going to say it how it is. My generation has rebelled against the older generations because we grew up in legalistic, rule-based Christianity, and we said, oh, we just want grace. We don't want those rules. Friends, if you don't have a backbone of rules, then you don't have what it means to live out grace. Both are applicable. We need to have a place where we watch what we watch, what we listen to, what we allow ourselves to consume. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, consider these things. Are we building our houses here? That's why we don't just play random movies on the screen up here. That's why we want our kids in this church to grow up around Christian things as much as we can. Because guess what? The moment we let go of that, the world's just going to come swoop in and take them right away from that. And finally, and you're here, but number seven, how do you build a Christian home? You let God build your house. You come to God's house. There's church. There's a strong connection to the local church where the family comes to worship together. That's what it's about. Our good friend, Jim Elliff, who's a sister, a brother. He's not a sister. He's a brother. He might, get, he might get mad if I told him that. 
But he wrote a great article, and Brother Dave and I know this well. He, he said, uh, don't let a ball, B-A-L-L. A lot of parents ball, B-A-L-L, and that becomes their weekend attraction. Soccer ball is being kicked, but they're really bowing down to B-A-L-L. They're worshiping a God of sports. Well, if I can just get my kid to be a college athlete, all our bills will be paid. But yeah, you paid like $100,000 to get them to that point, so I don't think it really balances out on the checkbook when you get to the end of it all. Friends, the church should be a priority. Look, you get sick, you go on vacation, things happen, we get that, but as far as we come together, we come together, and when you come to church, you show your kids it's a priority. When you slough it off as much as you're able to control it, you tell them that it's optional, it's not really that important anymore. How do you build a house of faith? You do so by being around God's people, imperfect people. We say Tower View is often an imperfect place for perfect people. And we are. Step in it. And Spurgeon said, you've already ruined a perfect church. How do you build a house? You don't labor it in vain. The Lord watches over it all. But I pray we start with these things. That's number one. Number two is this. Let God build your house. Not only let him build your house, but what God develops, God is going to defend. He says, let God balance your hustling. Let God balance your hustling. You say, how does verse two relate? I mean, if if this is about forming a spiritual foundation, I get that God needs to be the center of it, but what does it mean about verse two? Well, look back at it. You got your text. Look at it and read it with me again. Let God balance your hustling. It is in vain that when you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Look, if verse one is against overconfidence, about building the house by yourself, verse two warns about being overworked. And this may be speaking to males in general in that culture, but I think it speaks to all of us as we, as we go to this time. Even if you're retired, whatever your hobby is, whatever your idol is, whatever your, your, your time taker is, this is speaking to that. Look, God is not against building things in your life. God is not against using your talents and abilities, and especially your hands to work or your mind to think and work. And he's not against guarding it. He's not against hard work, but do all this without God and it's vain, empty, and foolish. And you think about, we walked in the streets of New York City. Have I told you how much I do not like that city? You can put me in a country pasture any day. I'm not a country boy. I just, I just, it just drove me nuts. Like, you have to hold your kids and luggage and not get run over by buses and cars and who, clowns throwing things everywhere. I mean, who knows what's going on there? It's a busy place. And I watched many times as people in suits walked by, and I thought, you know, I wonder how many hours they're working right now, these Wall Street executives, and how many things they do. But to work harder is no answer. It can be a fresh enslavement. Verse 2 basically says, get up early, stay up late, work yourself to death, and eat the bread of sorrows. Christians, we have a problem. We know that we're told to work with all of our heart, with all of our might, and do it all for the glory of God. That's what we're told. But there's a point at which that work becomes an obsession. That work becomes an idol. That work becomes more than providing for your needs and becomes more for for, for padding your stats at home so you can keep up with the neighbor who just bought this or bought that or did this or did that. It's all a matter of who you trust, really, what you trust. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says that sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Look, let me be clear here. I'm not saying we should abolish the 40-hour work week. I'm not saying it's a sin to work overtime not saying that you shouldn't try to better yourself and your job and your skills and all those things, but the bottom line is you can't burn the candle at both ends. You're either going to be fully vested here and fully vested in another thing. 
How many pastors literally do not go home at 8 o'clock at night because they feel like the church is going to fall apart without them here? That's idol worship of self. That's a trusting of self. May it never be. He says, you rise early and later. There's a bread of painful labor. Look, he says, it's better to stay at home and have a simpler life if it's grounded in God. It means less money if you're able to take care of those that you're in charge of. Friend, whatever you have in this life, is it overtaking the simple devotion to raise up your household? Whatever that is, single, widower, widower, grandparents, parents, with the simple fact of just knowing who God is. It's all a matter of who you trust and what you trust. And so I want to encourage you today. The Bible teaches a work ethic. Adam worked, didn't he? He worked so much that he he had to have a co-laborer with him. What are you going to be doing in heaven someday? You're going to be working. You're not going to be strumming on a guitar, Brian, sorry, with all all the angels up in heaven someday. You're going to be working. What glorious work it will be. There will be no sweat to your brow. You'll have all the energy you need. Christ is seated on the throne in the heavenlies. What a joy that is. We should have a strong work ethic. We're not to sit back and let welfare and do nothing. In fact, 1 Timothy says, if you, won't, if you won't work, you don't eat. That's what the command of Paul was to the scriptures. But he gives sleep to his beloved. Literally in Hebrew, he gives to his beloved sleep. If this reads in his sleep, it would mean God is providing while you sleep. But literally what it means is amidst the schedule of your life, amidst everything going on, what it means is, is that the one who wants God to build and protect his home, he will sleep, he will be at peace, and he'll be at rest because he knows it's God who is watching over him even while he cannot watch over himself. And church, that's a great reminder for us too. It's God, not gimmicks. It's the gospel, not glory for us. It's all glory to him. And if we want to see our homes and our hustling blessed, then we need to be reminded of these things. There was a poll done in 2018 that two-thirds of workers are dissatisfied. I wonder what if they did that again, where people would be after the pandemic. Are we BC or AC or AP? I don't know what it is now, before corona, after corona, whatever it is. But if you're here today, I want to remind you, if you're retired, if you're not retired, I want to give you some reminders about what the scripture says about work, because it's important to know this, and it affects how we focus on our children and our grandchildren. Number one is this. If God's going to bless your hustling, the gifts you employ in your work come from and belong to God. It's all his. You have no skill unless God gave it to you. I love those stories in Deuteronomy and Leviticus of these like metal workers. If you're in your Bible reading program, uh, you get these weird names of metal workers. And it's like this one guy that came out of Egypt who's building all this stuff for the Lord. I'm like, man, that's Robert Abens. And he didn't even know it. And it's all there. Our local carpenter. Whatever you are, it's not, your career is not about applying your abilities to achieve the life you've always dreamed of. The Bible teaches work at a regular place where God calls you to use it and do it for his glory and his honor. Sometimes it looks different, sometimes it's hard, but work is really all about him. Secondly, the time you invest in work belongs to the Lord. You know, so many times when I worked in the secular jobs, I often thought of myself simply as just another employee, that I wasn't a Christian there, I can only be a Christian at home. That is a Catholic theology, and I'm going to stomp on that for a minute. That's called the sacred and the secular, that only certain spots of your life can be sacred, but everything else is secular. Friends, that is straight from the pit of hell. Every inch of this world, Jesus says, that is mine. And every inch of your body, every inch of your work, every inch of your gifts, every inch of your house, he says, use it for my glory. The time you invest in work belongs to the Lord. 
well, Darren, I can't just read my Bible all day. I got to hit a na- hammer and a nail. I get that. But are you asking God to use whatever work you have, even in your retirement? Lord, would you use it for your glory to bring people to know you? Number three, you are called to live for something bigger than yourself. God has connected you to a reality. You are not at the center. I'm not a big Rick Warren fan, but his book of years gone by, Purpose Driven Life, the first opening line says, it's not about you. Friends, what are we here to do? We are here to make much of Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Take that gospel encouragement with you, no matter where you work or whatever you do, whatever family you hang out with. Number four, success is not about accruing power, but about resting in God's power. So often we want to climb the corporate ladder. If I could just get another promotion, if I could just get this next managerial job, if I could just get uh, this next labor certification, if I could just fill in the blank, I will be happy. No, you won't. You're only happy when your life is identified with Jesus Christ. When your life is resurrected in his power, your identity has been sealed in his resurrection. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. Success is not about accruing power. It's about resting in the power that's been given to you in Christ. Number five, I want to encourage you with this. It's hard to see. I'll try and read it slowly. God is too wise and loving ever to call you to one area of responsibility that necessitates you be irresponsible in another. The words in the blanks are wise and irresponsible. In other words, God will never call you to a career that makes biblical commitments to your family, to your church, to your faith that will overtake them. If your job, if your employment, if your passion, if your hobby, if your uh, moonlighting takes you away from simply fulfilling the God's commands to love him and neighbors and everyone in between, you've lost sight of what it really means to build a spiritual house. And I'm being serious. You all know, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna mention this for a minute. You all were sweet and let me run the Boston Marathon last week. And God is so good. Thank you for asking. I'm not saying this to make it about me. Ser- sermons are not about the pastor. But golly, I, you know that what a, what a treat that was. But I was reminded at every mile marker as I passed by, literally, and what strategery it took to get this done. The false religion of the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints, were at every mile in mass, probably 20 or 30 missionaries sharing their gospel at every point. I said I wouldn't say this, Dave, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know what I did at every mile marker? I yelled out, Joseph Smith is a false prophet, and I ran as quick as I could. And if you could have had a, a GoPro, Peggy, as we talked about on some of those faces as they walked by, like, what in the world? Even when I was running, the burden of saying that was on my I'm not saying you should do it or don't do it. That's just what I did. Don't, don't follow. Don't do that at home, right? But <laughs> the point is, is that God, even, even though I'm a runner and I'm not in my pastor's shoes, that responsibility was just heavy on my heart. And I had to say something. Probably shouldn't have, but I did. You know what? Wherever you're called to work, it doesn't overtake what God's called you to be for him in the workplace at the home. I don't know if any Mormons will come to Christ because of that. Probably not. But it kept me motivated for 26.2 miles. That's all I'm going to say about that. Right? Last thing is this. Let God bless your hustling. By grace, God welcomed you to rest in the knowledge that you will find everything you need in him. God provides. No matter what you face, who you face, where you face it, God provides. 
if you want to grow your faith and the family that God's given you, the connection of church God's given you, he will provide. He will provide. Your hustling, your toil, your work, he will provide. Say, Darren, that's great. God protects us. Let's build the house. God blesses our hustling. But how does this have anything to do with kids? We're getting there. You ready for number three? Let's go to the third one. Last point here. Let God bless your heritage. God, let God bless your house. Let God bless your hustling. Number three, let God bless your heritage. Grab your Bible with me as you put it down as I did. Let's read it together again, verses three to five. He says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children's of one youth, one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, for he shall not be put to shame. For when he speaks with his enemies in the gates... Look, the psalmist now zeroes in. He reminds us how to build the house. The Lord has to be the center of it all. He tells us that we shouldn't let our work and worry for our family overtake the commitment to building that spiritual house. Yeah, you gotta work. Yeah, you gotta provide. Yeah, those things. But don't let a good thing overtake the best thing. And now number three, he zones in on this. Why do we do these things? He says, let God bless your heritage. God's perspective is radically different. God gives children as a gift. You see there that word heritage, you may have the, uh, the, word, the phrase gift. It's literally gift. Where are children from? It literally tells you there, doesn't it? They're from who? The Lord. Yeah, God. Blessed is the one with godly children. Here's a building, a spiritual building that they have. Here's security. Here's something worth working for because they are there. But he uses his three images here to speak about this. And I'm pulling these out of the NASB because I think they spoke it the best. But he, there's three pictures here of children and the blessing they are. And these are on your notes. The first one is gift. The first one is gift. Children are a gift. Now, God is the one who can create a child. We did not do that. We, we had a, yes, I know. Not only the biology of that, but, but God creates out of nothing, so to speak. You understand what I'm saying. God is the one who's the author of life. Yes, using human instruments, but God is it. This word gift here literally means property or possession or that which is shared or assigned. In other words, we are given as stewards of the Lord those children or grandchildren or adopted children. Or if you're, if you're unable to have children, by extension, I would say here, the work of the children within the church. Do you know as a pastor, we, we take seriously Hebrews 13, 17 that says someday we'll give an account for every soul that's on the membership of our books. We will give an account for every person. But you know, first off, who I'm going to give an account for as a, as, a, as a leader of my home? My wife, my kids. Yeah, that church thing will come. But if you're here today, I want to challenge you with this. There's a great biblical argument across the scripture that even if you don't have grown kids or have any kids or plan to have kids, that you will be responsible for those kids that are within your sphere. Maybe not to the degree of those who have biologically had them, but don't just slough it off. How, if you're here today, can you be, in, well, Darren, I can't even get a kid to sit, that's okay. Are you praying for the kids of this church? Are you giving a presence to them, giving them a hug, a high five? Leo does this well. Leo does like fake body slams to him or something like that. Uh, he's a good with kids. Whatever it is, they are a gift from the Lord. It does not say some kids are a gift from the Lord. It does not say most kids are a gift from the Lord. It implies all children. There is no such thing as an accidental birth. We joke about that, don't we? Man, that was a surprise. 
But that child seated next to you or in this church is a gift. Don't forget that. But they're also, secondly, a reward. They're a gift, but they're also a reward. It says in verses 3 through 5 that the fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, ladies, I want to remind you of something. In those days, especially in the biblical days, if you did not have children, think of Hannah here, think of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's parents, think of all these, Sarah and Abraham. It was a societal, cultural thing. If you did not have kids, what in the world is wrong with you? Look, that was society speaking, not God. God is the author of all life. He is sovereign. He's in control. If you are a lady here today and you have tried to have kids and you are not, you are not a second-class Christian. Like some churches who say, if you don't speak in tongues, then you can't be a real Christian. No. The Bible says we are one in Christ. We are equal at the foot of the cross. Don't let society tell you that. I have good friends, and, and I, I know you all do too, or you know people who've tried and tried, and they, they, they could be the best godly parents ever. They just can't biologically. Look, are they, are they lesser loved by God? No, it's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that children are not a burden, but they are a blessing. Even if they aren't your biological kids and you have to adopt, they bring you joy, happiness, life, lots of bills and lots of heartache at times too, amen? But it's an expression of God's love and mercy to you. And that's what the Bible reminds us of. They are a gift, they are a reward. But they are also, and I know our pastor Brian loves this verse, they are also arrows, aren't they, brother? They are arrows. And this imagery returns to verse 1. You remember the watchmen? What did watchmen have in those days? They didn't have sniper rifles. They had bows and arrows. And they were on that gate ready to pull at command to shoot the enemy coming that they see. And, and, and this word watchmen speaks with those who are coming. But there are three ways that these kids are arrows. Are you ready for this? First off, they are carefully shaped arrows. They are carefully shaped arrows. They don't start out straight. I have talked to too many people on the streets witnessing that say, oh, I'm just born good. I have a clean slate. There's nothing wrong with me. You clearly have never met a toddler in your life, sir or ma'am. You don't have to tell any parent or any grandparent or any babysitter, God bless our young ones, that if you have not met a kid that has fought for its own way, his or her own way, then you, I, you really have no idea what life is all about. The terrible twos have nothing on the terrible ones, if, uh, if you've forgotten that. They are branches, kids are, that need to be whittled, that need to be shaped and formed, but parents and, and our churches must first be ministry to them to shape them into the Lord. We can't expect a non-Christian to do Christian things. Well, I don't want to force my religion on them, Pastor. Look, the devil isn't going to leave them alone. Why would you not try to point them to Jesus Christ? It is their choice. They stand before God accountable. But if you're in a church, you point them to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Or Christ is speaking backwards. That's why we need to be the biggest evangelists in our homes. They were born crooked. They got it from us, parents. Guess what? They got it from mommy and they got it from daddy. Two sinners came together and they produced a sinner. Wouldn't you imagine that? They need to be straightened out. Proverbs 22, 6, the principle, it's not a guarantee, it's a principle, not a guarantee. Train up your child in a way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. They must be correct, carefully shaped. They also must be correctly aimed, correctly aimed. I can shoot an arrow every which way. It doesn't hit the its intended target. After a warrior would shape his arrows, he must aim them in the right direction. It's no good if you have a good arrow and no direction. That's why as a church, 
as we dedicate this children's sanctuary or, or center, as we bring them in the sanctuary, as our parenting goes forth, we must be very intentional with our children. Man, that's overwhelming. Guys, if you're married here today, you are called to lay your life down for your spouse as Christ has loved the church. No pressure there, right? Parents, I think the second greatest thing we have is we have been given little souls. Church, we've been given little souls that have to be pointed to Jesus Christ. That's why from the pastor down, we want our children's curriculum, we want everything we do here to be gospel-centered. We don't want it to be just be a good person, love your neighbor, smile and say please. There's a place for manners, but we want them to do that because that's what God wants them to do, to honor him and honor those above him and around him. It's about Christ. As they grow up, they need to understand the gospel. That's why I can't believe parents, when I was growing up, I showed this a few weeks ago, when they got in trouble, they didn't, well, you're just not going to church. That's exactly what they don't want. That's exactly where they don't want to go. So you're giving it right to them. Stop it. Don't ground your kids from church. You bring them to church so they can hear the gospel preached and lived out. Look, children need to be correctly aimed. And where are we aiming them? We're aiming them to know the glories of God, that he's love, grace, mercy, justice, all the great things that he is in Scripture, that he sent his son and he loves them so much. But they also finally must be duly released. You can shape them, you can aim them, but at some point, you gotta let them go. It's no good if, if they have an arrow and they're sharp, but you don't let them go. You don't hang on to them forever. You don't helicopter parent them forever. I am gonna tell myself, and I put this in my notes, my wife will smile. I told my wife I did all my laundry before we got married. My mom was still doing my laundry for many, many years. Bless her. And my mom could never let me go because she was afraid I was gonna ruin all the clothes she bought for me. So my mom helped me with my laundry for many, many years. I want you to know I've redeemed myself. Now I do all the laundry for our, our house. But at some point, my mom and I have laughed about this, and my wife tells that story all the time. You have to let your kids go. You have to let them go. Not let them go without any prayers, but they need to be a direct hit for the kingdom of God. Why are we raising up young children? So that they can put Satan back in his place. So they can go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So they can go make disciples of every tongue, language, and nation. So they can go to every nook and cranny and go to places and use their gifts and, and raise up other spiritual families so that the gospel can go forth. That's why we raise them up. And verse five, why is the father not ashamed? Did you notice that? Why is, who's the they of verse five? Who's it referring to? It's especially referring to the fathers. Why are they not ashamed? Because even when there are people talking bad about the family or the church associated with the father or the family or the grandparent or the, the church member, they won't be ashamed because they know that all those people that they grew up with tried to point them back to Jesus Christ. They won't be ashamed in the gate. In fact, they'll be the greatest apologists for you because they know that it's there. Friends, as we close out today, I just wanna encourage you. We are very blessed. We wanna restart our Wednesday night time of kids sometime. We wanna do all these things, but as we get ready to close out our last song and ask you to walk back to the Children's Center, would you pray Psalm 127 for our church? Again, single, widow, widower, married, not married, hope to be married, whatever. This applies to you. Even if at the very base, you're praying this for other people, and especially within this church. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?
Father, as we come to you, as we get ready to sing our last song here, we are grateful, Lord, that you are the builder of the house, that you bless the hustle, and Lord, that you bless the heritage. Lord, this is not without sweat and tears. This is not without difficult times. This is not without hardship or, 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 or misunderstanding from even good Christian folk. But Father, as we seek to raise up the next generation of young people, even if they are not connected to us biologically, we pray that you help us to see them grow spiritually. Father, I pray for names in this church that I know. I pray for my kids. I pray for Karen Jesse's uh, brood of kids. I pray for Christopher. I pray for uh, Alicia. I pray for uh, other grandkids who are here. Father, we lift them up to you this morning. I pray for Donna's kid, grandkids. I know there are other kids I may be forgetting, but I pray for each of those that are popping in my head right now. Father, if they know you, that they live and walk with you, they do not yet know you, that you would break their hearts and humble them, even in their young years, to see that they've offended a holy, just God who, whose wrath hangs over their heads, but that in Christ, because of the love of your son, Father, coming to us, who lived the perfect life, he died, he bore the wrath, it's finished, he buried, he rose again to conquer death, he ascended and is coming again, that they too would come to know that truth. And I pray that for any adults here today who has grown kids, who've been praying for them for years, that Lord, they may appear hardened to the gospel, but if you can save the thief uh, at your son's side, Lord, at the very last, so too until that last breath, you are able. For with God, nothing is impossible. Lord, we pray for grown children here today who have been faithfully raised by parents in this church who are now in their, their moonlighting years, their golden years. Father, we pray and we give it to you. For those who may come to our church, who are visitors, who are, who are yet to be connected and a face we a name we don't know, that you would help us to point them graciously and boldly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, it is about coming to Christ and living for Christ. We love you so much. As we sing, may it be to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.